If you have a Bible somewhere there in, at your house, grab it, open up to Genesis 35. We're gonna do a couple of chapters tonight. We're picking up right where we left off on Sunday in Genesis 35. We'll do 35 and 36. Trust me on this because we're gonna get down toward the end and you're gonna think, you're gonna say, he hasn't even done chapter 36. Don't worry. We'll get there, we'll get through it. And uh, it's a blessing from the first to the last verse that we'll cover tonight, so I invite you to follow along. Again, we, we pick up where we left Jacob, God calling Jacob back to himself. And remember that, that is a, a major theme in what we're seeing happen in Jacob's life. God is calling Jacob back to himself, not to a place, but he's calling Jacob to the place of original revelation. Of the very first time that Jacob had that one-to-one -one contact with the Lord, it was in a dream, but it was at a place called Luth's that Jacob would rename Bethel, the house of God, because there God revealed himself to Jacob. And in verse one of chapter 35, as we saw on Sunday, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This is now some 20, 30 years before. God is faithful to his promise and he is calling Jacob back to himself. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak, the terebinth tree, which was near Shechem. Verse five tells us, as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob is now moving south from Shechem. He's heading, he's on his way down to Bethel as God has called him. Coming out of Shechem, you may recall that some bad stuff happened there, that Jacob in his delay, in his partial obedience, was there remaining longer than I believe the Lord wanted him to be. God had called him back to Bethel years before, and so he him hawed around, they were in Shechem, and in Shechem some bad stuff went down. His daughter, the sister of his 11 sons at that time, Dinah, was raped. Two of the sons, Levi and Shimon, went through the city of Shechem after talking those men into being circumcised. They went through the city and murdered them all, including the prince Shechem himself and his father. And now they're heading south and word travels fast. No doubt the sacking of Shechem by Jacob's sons sent shockwaves through the Canaanites of the land and so no one went after them, no one pursued them. They were all terrified of Jacob and his entourage. At least that's what you might assume. You might think because verse five tells us a great terror was upon the cities which were around them that perhaps they were all just afraid of what this group might do. If these two men could wipe out a city, what could this whole family do? And perhaps they were just afraid because of that bloody rampage. Well, my friends, you need to note in your Bibles that the phrase great terror in verse five. Great terror is hetat Elohim. In other words, terror of God. Terror of God. As they journeyed, there was a terror of God upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The great terror was not of man. The great terror was of God. Now, this is similar to what we read over in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 14, which talks about the dread of the Lord. That, that terror of God, uh, the hetat Elohim, the dread of the Lord is called the pachad Yahweh. Both are these sense, this idea that you're just terrified by the presence of God, not in a good way. Frightened, scared to death, frightened out of your wits. Afraid of the Lord. A couple nights ago, uh, Cheryl and I were out walking. Uh, Corey was with us, Nana Marie and David. We decided we'd do a walk of the neighborhood, a couple laps around the street, try to, get, uh, try to get in shape. I'm dying here. 
won't go into that. But we were out walking together and having some conversation, and of course our conversation turned to the distress of the current days and what we see happening, and my son Corey said this. He said, Dad, I cannot even imagine what it would be like to be here in the tribulation. If it's this weird, if it's this strange when we are dealing with a global pestilence, what would it be like at that time? I wouldn't want to be here. Revelation chapter six, verse 15, describing part of that in the first part of the tribulation period says, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? That, my friends, is the terror of God. The wrath of the Lamb, that is the the dread of the Lord. And today, I recognize we will either respond to the current distress that we are under with the fear of the Lord or the terror of God. It will be one or the other. The fear of the Lord or the terror of God. And the difference is in who we trust. Who we trust. The difference is faith. I wanna read this to you. This is uh, out of Psalm 14. And you can go there and keep your finger there in Genesis 35 if you'd like to. Psalm 14, dealing with talking about, discussing the fear of the Lord. Listen to this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation." You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. And so we will either fear the Lord or we will dread the Lord. And in this case, Jacob could rejoice because he feared the Lord. Whereas the Canaanites all around were in great dread, were in the terror of God, protected, Jacob was, protected by a holy terror, as he made the journey down to Bethel at last. But think about this. Why would God do this? Why would God send out the great terror around them, that protective terror, if you will? Why would he protect them after the brutal murder and sinful looting of Shechem by Shimon and Levi? And the answer is very simple, because God made a promise. He said back in Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God said to Jacob, I'm gonna stick with you. I'm gonna see you through this and I'm gonna bring you back to this land. And again, note the final thing he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now I remind you, until doesn't mean that once God had done what he had promised, he's out of here. Doesn't mean, okay, I fulfilled what I said I'd do. Now you're on your own, good luck. No, it's like Philippians 1.6 where Paul writes, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, until, when it refers to God and his faithfulness, does not imply a done with you finality, it's a promise of divine fulfillment. I'm gonna see this through. I will see you through, as Jesus said, Matthew 28, 20, I am with you to the very end of the age. Now that doesn't mean at the end of the age he's got this other thing he's gotta do, so have fun with the rest of your eternity. It just means I will get you there. I've got you, Jacob. I'm walking with you 
son or daughter in Jesus, I will see you all the way through. So verse six, Jacob came to Lutz. Finally, he came to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, just as God had promised. And note that when he was in Lutz the first time, he was all by himself, head on a stone pillow, sleeping that fitful sleep, going into a dream all alone with nothing but his staff. And now he's returning and verse six, in fulfillment of God's promise, it's now he and all the people who were with him. And verse seven, so he built an altar there and he called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Get this, get this. Jacob does. Jacob understands. El Bethel. Okay, the first time when he was in Lutz and he renamed it, he just called it Bethel, the house of God. Now he builds an altar and he calls the altar El Bethel. He dedicates the altar to El Bethel, which is God of the house of God. I mentioned before that ancient pagans often assigned their gods to locations, which in and of itself is a funny thought that they thought that they had the power and the authority to assign their gods to somewhere. See, I don't assign my God to where he's gonna be. He is where he wants to be because he's God. But the pagans, they would do this. Uh, he's in that tree or, or, or this God is in that river or this is that God of that mountain or that God of the landscape or the God of this village or city. And so they would assign the gods to specific locations. The difference here with Jacob, when he calls this God of the house of God, the reason he names the altar this way is because, as the verse says, there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. There God had revealed himself to him. In other words, God is not a God of location stuck in one place. He is the God of revelation, which is why we can say God is working right now. When we say he's the God of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, just one fellowship out of the entire church worldwide, but he is our God. We say Jesus is our Lord. That doesn't mean he's limited to the building that is owned by the Bridge Christian Fellowship. He is not locational, he's revelational, and he brings himself and his truth and his revelation, he reveals himself to whoever calls on his name. God of revelation. And he who reveals himself is also he who calls people to himself because he doesn't just offer salvation, he is salvation. Hey, I I'm saved. I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from death. But I'm not just saved to life and to heaven. I am saved to God. I am saved for him. I am brought to God himself. 1 John 5.20 says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. And John underscores this. This is the true God and eternal life. Let me make that plain. Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal life. We're not aiming for some heavenly existence beyond Jesus. We're aiming for Jesus. We're coming back to Jesus because he is the Savior who calls us to himself. El Bethel. We're talking about God of the house of God, God the God of revelation. Now, put on your thinking yarmulkes for a second here. I wanna go a little deeper into this verse and show you something that you would not see, cannot see in the English text. When we read this verse, verse seven, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Note this, Elohim, the, the Hebrew word for God, is a plural word. It's, it's three or more. And I've shared before, El is one God, uh, Elah is two, and Elohim always means three or more, which speaks beautifully to the triune nature of our God, Elohim. And when this word Elohim is used for false gods, and it is, 
In the Hebrew scriptures, Elohim is, when you see the word gods, plural, speaking of the pagan gods, that word Elohim is used. We would write it with a, a small e, like you would say pagan gods with a small g. It's just a word that can also mean the plural form of gods. Here's the thing to know. Whenever it describes pagan gods, when Elohim is used to describe pagan gods, the adjective or the verb that goes with it is always plural. So you would see they themselves, the Elohim themselves, would be a plural adjective or a plural verb to Elohim. When it is used of Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, Elohim has, and is followed by the, an adjective or a verb, it's usually in the singular. So we would say Elohim himself. What's interesting is in the text here, the adjective and, or the, the verb form here is one of the rare exceptions where we are talking about the Lord, Yahweh, but it is followed with the plural. That is, let me make this real simple for you. There God revealed himself to him is quite literally in the Hebrew, their Elohim revealed themselves to him. That's what it technically says. Their Elohim revealed themselves to him. Now understand, this is not some kind of latent paganism in Jacob. In fact, Jacob's not the one who's writing this. Moses is. And Moses writes in the biblical text that there, Elohim revealed themselves to Jacob as he fled from his brother. Interesting. Early on here in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Genesis account, Moses speaks of the plurality of the Godhead. There, Elohim revealed themselves, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is not some pagan offshoot. This is Elohim themselves, <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know what? The old rabbis recognize this. They read the verse in the Hebrew, and they know that Elohim here is the Lord God. In fact, it's pretty undeniable in the context and in the text itself. And so they don't know what to do with this. Their God revealed themselves to him, Oh, we, we've got to make some sense out of this. That's, it's a major oive in the thinking of an old rabbi. And so some say, well, perhaps Elohim just in this verse actually refers to angels. Jacob didn't think so. The Bible doesn't even give us that option. In fact, if you look back at verse three, it says, let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to Elohim, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so now in verse seven, he built an altar there and called it El Bet-El. El is the singular form, God of the house of God, El Bet-El. And there, the text continues, Elohim had revealed themselves to him. Speaking of that first revelation in the dream, which was again, the singular God, it was Yahweh, revealing himself in plural form, to Jacob. Interesting, the famous Rabbi Rashi, he claims that the word Elohim here must then not be angels, it's a term, it's God, it's speaking of God, but, but the use of themselves really is kind of like the royal we. It's speaking of the lordship of God. We ourselves will bless you, says the king or the queen. And that's, that's a little lame. In fact, Fruchtenbaum says all this is a rather weak way of trying to get around the obvious. The obvious is that God is triune. The obvious is that Elohim is God themselves, revealing themselves to Jacob, again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're at Bethel. Now, for the rest of our time tonight, I wanna give you a two-part outline that we will follow. The first part will spend the bulk of our time, and then the last part will be much faster. We're gonna talk about endings and beginnings, or part one will be partings, and part two will be passings. Partings and passings. So part one, we begin with partings of sweet sorrow. Verse eight. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died 
And she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alon Bakut. Alon Bakut means the oak of weeping. Oak of weeping. Deborah dies. This is the first time we've seen this name. We can assume that this is the name of the nurse that's mentioned who came with Rebecca back in Genesis 24, verse 59. And note that this isn't Rachel's nurse. This is Rebecca's nurse. It's an interesting verse because we, we have to wonder and we have no way of knowing or answering this, but is this Deborah? Has she been with Jacob all this time? Did Rebecca send Deborah with Jacob when he departed? No, because he was alone. Well, did she perhaps then, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, did she send Deborah to Jacob when his wives began having children to help out and then she stayed with him? Or perhaps Deborah is not with Jacob at all, but is still with Isaac south of Bethel and dies and then is buried. Note that it says here, under the oak that is below Bethel, so to the south of Bethel. And we don't know the answer to any of that, how that is all working out. In fact, Kyle and Delich put it this way. They say Deborah had either been sent by Rebecca to take care of her daughters-in-law and grandsons or had gone of her own accord into Jacob's household after the death of her mistress. That is, Rebecca is now dead. The mourning at her death and the perpetuation of her memory in the Bible are proofs that she must have been a faithful and highly esteemed servant in Jacob's house. And that's what you gotta note here, that in verse eight of Genesis 35, Deborah, this otherwise completely unknown woman, gets an honorable mention in the Holy Bible. She gets named, mentioned here, a servant of the house, and you know what that tells us? This is proof of something else in the scriptures, and that is that servants are highly valued by God, highly valued. God doesn't look at the grand and glorious king. God doesn't look at the wealthy landowner. God doesn't look at the successful politician. God doesn't look at the great businessman who's amassed all kinds of success. He notices the servant. He sees Deborah and he mentions her in his word because God highly values the servant. Matthew chapter 20. Do you remember the story when the sons of Zebedee, James and John, Yaakov and Yohanan, their mother came to Jesus and she wanted some special treatment. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, she came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. And I don't know why I'm going British there, but, but she's asking for special privilege for James and John to sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom in the seats of highest honor. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Hearing this, now here's the point of the story. The 10 became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. The word servant, doulos in the Greek. It's the lowest form of slave. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, he says. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, servants in the Bible are highly valued by God because there was no greater servant than God himself. That when God brings self-revelation to the world in the person of Jesus Christ, he does so as the greatest servant history has ever seen. No greater servant than he who died at the greater tree 
of weeping. Note that they buried Deborah at Alon Bakut, the tree of weeping. But Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. You want to talk about a tree of weeping? And yet, the servant Jesus at the tree of weeping, the cross of Calvary, rather than weeping, we are now among those who fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The author and finisher of faith who, listen, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The tree of weeping that brings the greatest joy to the servants of the Lord because it was at the cross that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, gave his life that we might live. God highly values the servant. I can think of no greater joy than one day to hear the God who served me with salvation say to me, Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful slave. And to hear him say, enter in to the joy of your master. One more note here about Deborah's death in the chapter. And it is simply that I, it may also be here, though it literally happened and historically happened, it's also a literary device because it foreshadows another parting. But it's the first parting of the chapter as Deborah dies and is buried there at Alon Bakut, the tree of weeping. Now hold that thought and go on, verse nine. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him. Once again, as he did at Peniel, after the wrestling match there, God blessed Jacob there and now he blesses Jacob again. He appears to him, not in a dream, not in a nefarious, strange, mysterious wrestling match in the dark of night, but now he simply appears to Jacob, and as he does so, he blesses him. But note this in verse nine. The Bible doesn't say, and God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Shechem. It doesn't say, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Shechem, well, Sukkot by way of Shechem. It doesn't say that God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Peniel by way of Sukkot, by way of Shechem. It just says God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram. My friends, Padam Aram, that was 20 years ago. 30 years ago, perhaps. Lots of time has passed since God calling him from Padam Aram all the way now to Bethel. But the Bible doesn't even notice. It's like no time has passed at all. And that's the way it is with God. What a beautiful picture of what happens when we repent. When we turn back to God, to you and to me, we may feel the length of the years the locust has eaten. We may feel the length of the loss of time in our lives that we could have spent in the presence of God and in the service of the kingdom, but no, we were off wandering, we were off lost. It took us a long, long time. We struggled, we delayed, we wrestled, we wandered, but we finally repented and we're like, oh Lord, I'm so sorry it's taken me so long. And he's like, what? How long? What do you mean so long? You see, when we repent, it's as if no time has passed at all for God who is I am. I wanna encourage you, if there is someone tonight listening to this and you've been struggling and the only reason you're able even to listen to this is because it doesn't require you to walk into a church building, but at least I can listen at home. Listen, when you turn to God, when you come back to God, it's as if no time has passed which is why Peter could say in Acts 3.19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not times of guilt tripping, not times of shame, not times of, well, it took you 20 years, so I'm gonna give you 20 years to think about this before I forgive. No, times of refreshing right now, immediately, as though you had made the trip from Padan Aram and now you're back 
and it's taken a long time, but to God, it's as if you just turned around and all the mess in between is forgiven. Times of refreshing, he says. So here he is appearing to Jacob at Lud's at Bethel. He's blessing Jacob. This is now the second appearance of God to Jacob since he set foot back in the land, since he crossed the Jordan River. It's the fifth appearance since God first came to him in that original dream here at Bethel. And now the Lord is gonna reconfirm again to Jacob for the second time the Abrahamic covenant. Watch this, verse 10. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God doubles down on Jacob's new name, Israel. Remember, he renamed him Israel at Peniel in the wrestling match. Your name from here on out is Israel. And Jacob used it a couple times, but he's still Jacob. Man, when you've been Jake all your life, it's kind of hard to switch over to Israel. God's saying, I want you to make that switch. You are Israel. This is to be your name. The one who struggles with God, but who now is governed by God or the prince of God. Israel, he doubles down on the new name. And then in verse 11, God also said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. So now God doubles down on the promise that a nation and nations would come right through Jacob's line, through the lineage now of his sons. And then in verse 12, he says, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you and I will give the land to your descendants, that is to your seed after you. So he doubles down on Jacob's new name. He doubles down on the promise that he will be a great nation and nations would come from him. And he doubles down on the land promise. Jacob, I'm telling you what I told you before, what I told Isaac, what I told Abraham. And that is that your descendants after you, this land is their land. This land is their land, it belongs to them. And by the way, Bible students note this, this is pre-law of Moses. This covenant promise has nothing to do with the keeping of the law or the failure of the Jewish people to keep it. This is God's promise, his covenant, that he must keep. Isn't it interesting that Israel is in the land, that Israel became a nation again, that Israel exists at all in the Middle East is nothing short of the miraculous commitment to covenant of the Lord our God. And then verse 13, God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob, he set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil upon it. And so as the Lord goes up, Jacob pours out. He pours two things here, and these are gonna be seen more and more, especially as we get into Exodus, Lord willing. The drink offering, this is pouring out an offering of wine onto the altar, and it would immediately sizzle and evaporate. Wine is a picture of blood in the Bible. Jacob pours out a drink offering. And then he pours oil onto this stone altar that he has built, oil through the scriptures, a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. And let's be specific, it's a picture of the spirit of Mashiach, Messiah, the spirit of Christ. The oil is that beautiful picture, oil and blood, the wine, the Holy Spirit. And Jacob pours this out now on the altar. And then verse 16, Actually, verse 15, so Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, which is a, a repeat of his earlier naming, Bethel. Then, verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel. Hold it. Wait a minute. What? They journeyed from Bethel? What had God called him to do at Bethel? Would you look back at verse 1? God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there. 
He didn't say pop in. He didn't say stop off. He didn't say drive through. He said, I want you to go up to Bethel and I want you to stay there. The word live there, the phrase live there is literally to dwell, to sit, to remain, to abide. Stay, Jacob. Good boy. <laughs> stay. Just stay. Jacob goes through the, the building of the altar, the worship of God, the pouring out of drink offering and oil. Here's from God the reconfirmation of the covenant here. Names the altar there, El Bethel. It's a beautiful moment. It's a very spiritual moment of worship, but worship is over. It's the end of the hour, and he heads out the door, and we're told in verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel. Jacob is gonna head south. Now, some say, well, maybe he just was at Bethel, and he's gonna stay in the general region. No, he's gonna head 20 miles to the south. He's gonna set up camp at a place called Migdal Adair, which is 20 miles from Bethel, at least, maybe further. And I think, I think Jacob, who is supposed to be Israel now, is still suffering partial obedience. Listen, sometimes we don't know why God asks us to do something, but he knows. Sometimes we're clueless. We know it's the Lord, we have a very strong sense that this is what he wants, but it doesn't make sense. I can tell you that's exactly what happened with this church fellowship. I had the most unmistakable calling of God for this fellowship to start a church on North Whidbey Island. And not only did I hear the call to do that, but it was clear to me, and I kept telling people around me, it's not supposed to be down in Oak Harbor, and it's not supposed to be anywhere else on the island. It's supposed to be north of Troxel. Guess where we are today? Guess where the barn was that we existed in for the first 11 years, north of Troxel? But I'm telling you, it made no sense. Church planting and church growth experts tell you when you plant a church, you do it in the midst of people. You don't go out into the middle of nowhere. It didn't make sense. And sometimes God asks us to do things. We don't know why. And I wonder, I really wonder, if Jacob had obeyed fully and not journeyed on from Bethel, if the next sorrowful parting might have been avoided. Genesis 35, 16, they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni, son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So verse 19, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. Note this, Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave and that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this very day. Do you remember what Rachel had said to Jacob years before when she was unable to, to bear children? She was jealous of her sister Leah. In fact, Genesis 30, verse one, when Rachel saw that she bore no children to Jacob, she became jealous of her sister Leah, and she said to Jacob, give me children or I die. And so it was almost a self-fulfilled prophecy. She dies in childbirth. She had already given birth to Joseph, her firstborn. Now she gives birth a second time, and in this birth, she will die. The tomb of Rachel, interesting, the pillar of Rachel's grave, verse 20, is here to this day, Moses writes. Moses says it's there. So it was still standing when Moses wrote this because it was to this day, to at least to Moses' day. Today, what is called the tomb of Rachel sits just outside of Bethlehem. And many ultra-Orthodox Jews will a custom or will visit that place daily, nightly. We did one time, went down. It's, it's just on the other side of the, of the security wall between Bethlehem on the other side and then Israel proper. 
And we went in there and it was very interesting. We were allowed to actually walk through what's called Rachel's tomb and, and a lot of the uh, yeshiva students were in there and the Hasidic Jews and they were praying and they were rocking back and forth and they were, they were singing aloud and, and it, was, it was an interesting experience. We went in at night and we came back out quietly. Turns out that's not the right location at all. It doesn't fit the biblical record. It's a place, place of tradition and about half the rabbis say, yes, that's the place because of tradition and we stand on tradition. But then the other half of the rabbis say, well, no, that's not where the Bible shows that it was. In fact, the Bible says Rachel was buried on the way to Bethlehem, not at Bethlehem. Now her tomb, again, was still standing when Moses wrote this down. It was also still standing in the days of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse two, he says, when you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. That tells us where it is, Zelza. Well, where's Zelza? Zelza was north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem. So Rachel's tomb was north of Jerusalem on the way to Bethlehem, but not at Bethlehem. Rachel's tomb is was still there in Jeremiah's day as well. Zelza has another name in the region of Benjamin, and that name is Rama. And maybe this verse is familiar to you. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, a prophetic word. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And Matthew tells us that was a prophecy of the birth of Christ when all the male children under the age of two were slaughtered by Herod. Rachel's tomb, Rama, north of Jerusalem. And that's where she was buried. Well, verse 21 tells us, then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. And now we get to where he settles down for a bit anyway, tower of Adair or Migdal Adair. Whenever you see the word, the phrase Migdal in the scriptures, it means tower. Adair means of the flock. This is the tower of the flock. Jacob is now dwelling, is now living in what we would call today the shepherd field's of Bethlehem. This is where Jesus was born, in these fields, at this location. By the way, God heard Rachel's prayer. Back in Genesis chapter 30, verse 24, she named her first son Yosef. Yosef, which means God gives, God adds to. It was a prayerful naming that he would add more children to her, and he does in little Benjamin. He adds Benjamin to the sons of Jacob, thus rounding out the 12 sons of Jacob. But God does more than that. He does, Ephesians 3.20 tells us, far more abundantly beyond all we can ask or even think. For there at Bethlehem, at the shepherd's fields, the son of God's right hand came into the world. Son of my right hand, perfect name for Benjamin. And no doubt, Jacob named him that, Israel named him that because he honored him and he loved Rachel so much and at her loss, this son was precious to his father. So was the son of God. Precious to his father, as Micah 5, 2 tells us, as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to me among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He is the son of God's right hand. Now that doesn't mean he's God's right hand man. That doesn't mean he's one step down from God. No, in the Bible to be at the right hand is to be equal to authority, to be equal in position, to be equal in power, to be the son of the right hand is to be as good as the, as the one on the throne himself, which is why the Bible tells us in Psalm 110 verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The right hand of God, Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. It's a good word for this season that we're in. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand 
of God. Well, with the death of Deborah and now the death of Rachel, we have at the same time this birth of Benjamin. Israel moves on down to the shepherd's fields and we now shift to the second part of our study. We move from partings of sweet sorrow now to the passing of the torch of Israel. Kidner says Jacob was to live on, but the center of gravity would now shift to his sons. We'll see Jacob throughout the rest of Genesis, but the focus is now on the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is changing now, the passing of the torch, but it is not a very pretty lighting ceremony. Verse 22, it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land. Note that he's called Israel. In fact, in verses 21 and 22, he's called Israel three times. But it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard. Oy vey. The first three sons of Jacob, Shimon and Levi, with their horrific slaughter of Shechem. And now the thirdborn, or, or the, the, the firstborn, actually, Reuben, with this sexual depravity. Reuben, Simeon, Levi. What is wrong with this family? What is wrong with these boys? One after the other showing nothing but sin. Listen, the Bible sugarcoats nothing. The Bible's very clear in its storytelling. It tells it like it is. It tells it from the depth of the depravity of sin all the way to the height of God's love at the cross. And what we see here with the first listing of the 12 sons of Israel is the desperate need for God's grace in Jesus Christ. The 12 sons are about to be named. Before they're named, we find out what Reuben did. We already know what Shimon and Levi did. And now they're about to be named together in, in the first list that we have in the Hebrew scriptures of the 12 sons all together. And what we recognize is Israel will never be saved by national or personal lineage, and certainly not by some level of righteousness. The only way Israel will ever be saved is by the grace of God through faith in Yeshua HaMashiach, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There is one way to God, and that is through Jesus. He is the only way. Now, Jacob hears that his son has gone into his concubine and lay with her. He hears about it. He does nothing yet. Not yet. But with punishing prophetic power, later on in Genesis 49, verse three, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. He says, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And listen, in that moment, what Jacob proclaimed was that here in Genesis 35, verse 22, Reuben lost the birthright. Reuben's the firstborn son. Have you ever wondered why it's not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Reuben? He's the firstborn. You would think it would be passed along to him that, that he would be the one who gets the birthright and the blessing. The reason here, it would now go to Joseph's sons. We'll see this later on. Ephraim and Manasseh are gonna receive the preeminence. They're gonna receive the blessing of the firstborn. They will share the firstborn blessing as the two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Reuben will not. Verse 23, or 22 continuing, now there were 12 sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and then Shimon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, 
and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aran. And of course, the only exception to that is little Benjamin who was born in Bethlehem. But now we come to the final parting of chapter 35. Before we get into the full passing on of the torch, which actually we'll pick up in chapter 37, right now we have the last parting, the parting of Isaac. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriatarba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. As far as we know, Jacob hadn't seen his dad in three decades, in a long time. If you do the biblical math, you will find that between verses 27 and 28 is about 12 years. That is, Jacob came to his father and would spend the last 12 years of Isaac's life with him at Kiriatarba, at Hebron. Jacob spent that time finally with his dad at the end of his father's life. Remember as Jacob returns that Rebekah is already dead and buried in the cave of Machpelah. Jacob would not see her again. Rachel, Jacob's love of his life, she's dead and buried on the way to Ephrath, so Isaac would never meet her. But the father and the son are back together in this place. And verse 29 says, Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, literally an old man and satisfied with days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. So the brothers unite. Uh, They reunite Esau and Jacob, possibly for the very last time. The only two times we see them reunite at all is when Jacob comes back from Peniel, and then now. We don't know if there was any time in between. The Bible doesn't tell us. But at least for this time, they reunite at their father's funeral to bury their father. And note this, it's just intriguing to me. It's the only time in the Bible where they are called Esau and Jacob rather than Jacob and Esau. I don't exactly know why, perhaps out of respect for Isaac, who we know loved Esau more. So maybe in that moment, that was the standard. It may also be simply that in most families, when we come back together, you slide back into position. (laughs) No. So Esau and Jacob buried their father. As for Isaac, he died an old man gathered to his people, which has the hint or the sound of he's saved. He's part of the lineage. He's, He's home now waiting in Abraham's bosom, perhaps. He died an old man of ripe age, satisfied with days. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse three. If a man fathers a hundred and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a burial, I say better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity. Now, when Solomon wrote that, he was a bitter old man. Everything was obscure as far as he was concerned. Everything was meaningless, but he makes a good point that if the soul is not satisfied with the good things, then is life really worth the living? I would say to you tonight, if we can't walk with thanksgiving, if we can't be satisfied with the blessings of God, then what good is a life? to walk in bitterness and grumpiness and and always wanting something more and never happy with what we get, never satisfied, never content. The Bible tells us that godliness with contentment, that's the deal. Contentment with godliness, that's, that's worth having. And if you would pursue that, I would encourage you to begin simply by being thankful and by being satisfied with the good things that God has given you. Well, all of this leads perfectly into Genesis 36. Now, hold on tight. I told you before we started, we have an entire chapter to do. Hold on tight, keep your arms and feet inside Genesis 36. At all times, we're gonna be moving fast. 
Verse one, these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Genesis 36 now brings us back-to-back told dotes. And we talked about what told dotes were prior to this. There are 11 told dotes. A told dote is a what became of, or, or what happened to. And these 11 told dotes are divided up throughout the book of Genesis, and the old rabbis used them to organize Genesis, and we now come to the ninth and the 10th told dotes, both dealing with Esau. So in chapter 36, the first eight verses are the told dote of Esau, the what became of Esau. It will describe him and his sons. Then verses nine through 43, the rest of the chapter, are what became of the generations of Esau, and that's told dote number 10. So watch this. Told out number nine, beginning in verse two, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zebian, the Hivite, and Basmat, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaiot. And Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basmat bore Reuel, and Aholabama, <laughs> bore, there's so many jokes I can make with that. We're just gonna keep rolling. Aholabama, his wife, where are we now? I lost that. Bore Yeush and Jalam and Korah. And these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods which he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of the livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Esau the man now becomes Esau the location, or Edom, the country of Edom. Now, quickly, the difference in the names, if you note this, if you're studying out these things, and you go, well, wait a minute, his wives as named in Genesis 26, and then in Genesis 28. They're not exactly the same names as the wives as they're listed here in Genesis 36. Is that a contradiction? Not at all. They're either name changes, which was common, or perhaps they were nicknames. But this brings us now to the 10th toldote, which are Esau's sons and grandsons, and beginning in verse 9 through 14, we read, these are the records of the generations, the toldote of Esau, father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, Reuel, the son of Esau's wife, Basmat. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, who was one of the original Marx brothers, Gatam and Kanaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore, note this, Amalek, to Eliphaz, Amalek is the father of the Amalekites who were, who were major enemies of Israel. And these are the sons of Esau's wife, Adah. And these are the sons of Reuel, Nahat, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. And these are the sons of Esau's wife, Basmat. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Yeush, Jalam, and Korah. Now we've seen those names. So now we're into the descendants of Esau. And then picking up in verse 15 down through verse 30, we get into the chiefs of the various clans of Edom. And they're prolific. I mean, kids are born everywhere and chiefs are rising up through this country, through these clans, the different clans within the larger country of Edom. And then in verse 31, I told you we'd be moving. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Verses 31 through 39 list all these kings over the Edomites. But I want you to notice something. Just check this out. In verse 33, it says, Bela, that's the first king listed, Bela died. And Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, that's Petra, became king in his place. Actually, Basra's not Petra, but it's near Petra. Then verse 34, Jobab died, and another became king in his place. Then verse 35, Husham died, and another became king in his place. Verse 36, Hadad died, and another became king in his place. Verse 37, Samla died, and another became king in his place. Then Shaul died, 
and then there is in his place. And then Baal Hanan died, and Hadar became king in his place. Note that. King rises up, king is dead. King rises up, king is dead. King rises up, king is dead. Rise to greatness, fall to death. And it happens over and over with these Edomites. First to rise as kings and rulers, in fact. The Edomites had kings over them long before Israel did. While Israel was still struggling in Egypt, there were kings and the Edomites. And while Israel was still on their return, and then while Israel was still moving through all the many decades of the judges, the Edomites had their kings and their chieftains and their, and their rulers, their clans. And so the final section of chapter 36 in verse 40 deals with spheres of influence within Edom and ownership of land and possession. In verse 40, these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their localities by their names, Chief Timnah. Wait a minute. If you look back, you find out earlier on, Timnah, Timnah is the concubine, verse 12, of Esau's son Eliphaz, but Timnah, she is a chieftain. And Chief Alva, and Chief Jetet, and Chief Aholabama. Aholabama was a wife who is also a chieftain. And then Chief Allah, and Chief Pinion, Chief Kanaz, Chief Taman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdil, and Chief Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. Now listen. All their chiefs and kings, their power and their positions and their provinces and their habitations are all gone. They do not exist. They're all the stuff of so much history. Israel goes on. Israel is still here. The descendants of the sons of Israel still exist. Did you know that Bethel is a thriving suburb of Jerusalem today? It's remarkable, the existence of God's people Israel. Why? Why is Israel still here? Now listen to me on this, because God made a promise. Do you remember the promise? Genesis 28, 15, again, God said that first time at Bethel, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you, and I really wonder if the promise hasn't extended far beyond Jacob the man to Israel the people. I will not leave until I've accomplished what I've promised you. And what is that? Bring you back to the land, to the land, establish you, put you above the nations of the world. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10, he said, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity, and Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. Do you want to live beyond all partings and passings? Do you wanna continue? I mean, there are those who have the dread of God, the, the terror of God, the dread of the Lord, like the Edomites. You can live afraid of God and not continue. But if you wanna live beyond all partings, beyond all passings, don't go to Edom. You won't find life there. In fact, if you do travel there today, you'll see what I've seen. Barren desolation, emptiness as far as the eye can see. Edom is a cursed land to this day. Don't go to Edom. There is no life there. By the way, chapter 36, like we saw in chapter 34, lacks a single mention of the name of God, not a one in dealing with Esau. 
And what is Esau a picture of in the Bible? A picture of the flesh, a picture of carnality, a life lived in the flesh, the mind set on the flesh is death. And that's what we see in the history of Esau. All of this rising up, all this greatness, all this prolific growth of a people and a nation and nation stays within the nation and it's gone, man, it's just gone. There's no life there. By the way, don't go looking for life in Bethel either. Come to El Bethel. Come to the God of the house of God. Come to Jesus and be saved for life. For as we read earlier, John 20, verse 30, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Hang with me just a second longer. I'm gonna pray, and I have something I wanna announce to you. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for the blessing of hearing your word. We thank you for the example that we see in Jacob, both good and bad, both obedient and partially obedient. We thank you for the insights that you provide and you give us. I pray that, that you will now cause your people to, to chew on these things and think about them. Cause us to choose life in Jesus Christ, even in these days of distress. Even, Lord, as we are hearing that this month we're supposed to see a great increase in death, we choose life in Jesus. And I pray that the joy set before you, Lord Jesus, would be our joy as servants of the Most High God. I pray your blessing on my brothers and sisters. Help us to take these things and recognize it is not a place, it is not a location. It's not a nationality, it's not a people group. It's you, Lord, you are our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. 